0: So, when, uh, when we drove in this morning, we, we turned around the corner in the driveway, and Davey goes, Mommy Church! And I, wanted, I was thinking, I want that excitement <laughs> this morning. But then she did say, Chief Nisi! So that means she was just really excited to see her grandparents this morning. So, <laughs> yeah. I'm excited to see you guys too, um, but Davey's more <laughs> excited. Awesome. Well, good morning, guys. Thank you so much for coming this morning. Um, It feels different with a smaller crowd here, Um, but I want to remind you, uh, we have more people in our church family who are worshiping with us, just not in person. They're joining us uh, from home uh, via the live feed, and none of us want it that way, but this is the best thing that we can do at this time, continuing to worship together at the same time, uh, even if we're we're miles apart. And Actually, before I I jump in, one more thing I wanted to say— you know, at this time, we are a church family. Um, and because we're a church family, sometimes um, I have to come to you with certain requests, things that I want to ask you to do, uh, as just a part of our church family. And one of our needs right now, a need that I really just want to put on your, on your radar so that you can be thinking about and praying about, is we need a little bit more help with our, with our tech team. Um, we have um, a, a good-sized team, not a, not a huge team, um, but right now, with some people staying home and some people coming, it's even smaller than it typically is. And so if you have tech skills, great. If you don't, uh, and are willing to learn, great. Uh, we just need somebody, uh, or a couple people, really, who are willing to help uh, manage all the moving tech bits uh, at, uh, at church during this time. So if you're willing, please talk to Josh or Tracy, uh, and they'll, they'll get, you, get you into that. Thank you so much for just praying about that, considering that. Uh, being a part of our church family in that way. All right. So we're in 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4 verses 4, sorry, verses 12 through 19. 1 Peter chapter 4 verses 12 through 19. And you know as we walk through this book of 1 Peter, uh, we talk quite a bit about suffering and quite a bit about persecution. And the reason that Peter wrote so much about suffering and about persecution is because not only is that the context is not only is that the topic of this book in many places, but it's the context of this book. This letter was written to Christians who are in the midst of suffering, specifically the suffering of persecution. So it makes sense that Peter would want to speak into that situation, to speak into that context. And in this passage today, 4 verses 12 through 19, Peter addresses the topic of persecution head-on. He addresses it more directly than he does maybe anywhere else in the book, and so that's what we're going to do today as well. Because persecution, Peter tells us, and I'm telling you as well, it's an inevitability. It's going to happen. It might look different for us today than it did back in Bible times. It might look different for us here In the United States, than it does in other places, but it will happen. And so, what this passage is pointing us towards is asking this question how will we respond when it does? Even if that's just a loss of favor, even if that just means that you have a friend who's less willing to call you a friend, how will we respond when that happens? What's going to happen in our mind? What's going to happen in our hearts? So, believers, please be listening today for the answer to that question how do you respond? But like so many of the passages in the book of 1 Peter, it is written specifically to believers. So what if you're not a believer? How are you supposed to hear and be helped by this message today if you're not a believer? Well, I think first of all, it is going to give you a better understanding of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. I mean, we, uh, if you are a Christian, um, we, we tend not to share the message of inevitable suffering <laughs> when we share the good news of Jesus Christ, right? We don't, we don't lead with that. And that's not necessarily because we're trying to hide it or trying to brush it under the rug. The reason why we don't lead with suffering, even though we believe it's going to happen to one degree or another in the Christian life, is because we believe that the gift that is ours in the Gospel so far outweighs the suffering that we experience in this life. I'm getting ahead of myself. But please be listening for that, if you're not a believer. What does it mean to be a follower of Christ? Both in suffering, but also with the hope that is ours in the Gospel. So I'm going to read this passage, 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12-19. through 19. I'm going to pray, and then we will get started. Peter writes, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you, to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you also may rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evil doer or a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed; let him glorify God in that name. For if it is for it is time for the judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if righteous and if the righteous are scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Let's pray together. Father, we we love the fact that your word is true. And not just true, but spoken from you. (laughs) So not only, therefore, is it true, but it's good. It's, it's trustworthy. The, the direction that it points us is reliable. We can, we can hear it, believe it, and obey it. And believe that it will be for our best, in our own best interest, but also, Lord, that it will get us a better understanding of how, how good and how glorious and how majestic and how awesome you are. So I just pray this morning, Lord, not only would we know a little bit better how we should follow you, And if we're not a believer, Lord, uh, not only would it help us understand what it means to be a follower of you, but Father, we pray that what would happen this morning is that we would get just another little glimpse of how good and awesome you are, Lord. Be glorified this morning in that way. And be glorified in the way that we take this message and apply it. And so we pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we mentioned this before, actually, just two weeks ago, when, when, I, when, I, when I last preached. But the Christians in the first century, when they were persecuted, uh, they, they weren't necessarily persecuted because they were followers of Jesus Christ, not in and of themselves. You know, the Jewish people, they might have had an issue with this group of people worshipping a man that they did not believe to be God. But the majority of their neighbors, the Gentiles around them, the, the people who worshipped other pagan gods, What did they care if another god was worshipped? They didn't care if anybody worshipped Jesus, he was just one amongst many gods. So they weren't persecuted necessarily because they worshipped Jesus. The reason that these early Christians were persecuted was actually threefold. The first reason that they were persecuted was because they didn't worship the pagan gods. They refused to worship the pagan gods. And we have to understand this by putting our minds in, in their mindset or to put ourselves in their shoes. Because these ancient cultures, they believed that they had to worship these gods in order to pacify these gods, in order to please these gods. They needed to do sacrifices to the god of rain to make it rain. They needed to do sacrifices to the god of fertility so that they could have babies. And so if there's a group of people in their town who was refusing to worship the gods, what would happen to them? Would that make the gods angry? Would the gods judge them because people weren't worshiping them? And so for the, fir- the first reason why uh, Christians were persecuted is because they refused to take part in that pagan worship, trying to please the ancient gods. That's number one. Number two, the second reason that they persecuted Christians is because Christians refused to worship the emperor. And for a Christian to refuse to worship the emperor was seen as treason, Not only was it seen as their refusal to take part in the Roman religion, but it was also a refusal to honor the emperor as supreme over them. So, they got persecuted not only because they were offending the gods, but also because they were committing treason against the empire. The third reason why Christians were persecuted was the one we saw two weeks ago. Was that the Christians' refusal to take part in the gladiatorial games, delighting in its violence. And their refusal to go to the theater and delight in the sexuality that was found there was, re- was received by the culture as condemnation of those things. And so the Christians were not popular for those reasons, not only because they didn't, not simply, rather, because they didn't, because they worshiped Jesus, but because they didn't take part in all of these other things. And now in reality, this is really similar for us. This is almost the exact same reason why we are persecuted today because after all, there is nothing wrong with us worshipping Jesus in the eyes of our culture, not in and of itself. When our culture looks at us and they see us worshipping Jesus, they don't necessarily get mad because we're worshipping Jesus. After all, the name of the game at this time in history is, is tolerance. You're allowed to worship whoever you want. You're allowed to believe whatever you want as long as you don't force it upon me. The issue with following Christ at this time, how how Christians at this time in history are losing favor in the surrounding culture, it's because of some other things. So let's get a little bit of a a profile here. What is it today that's causing people in our culture to to push away from Christians? uh, What's causing us to lose favor in the eyes of our neighbors? Well, here's a few. The first might be that we believe that every other religion is wrong. We claim exclusive access, exclusive knowledge to the truth. What's more offensive right now than saying that? If you were to say to a coworker that you believe that every Muslim is wrong, how would they hear that? Every Hindu, every Mormon, every Jehovah's Witness is wrong. How would they receive that? It would not make you friends. It would not make you popular. And not only that, but we as Christians, here's another one we believe in the existence of a literal hell. What is more countercultural than that? The belief that anybody who does not put their faith and their trust in Jesus Christ demands eternal punishment? Are you kidding me? That will not make us friends. But it's what the Bible teaches us. We believe that this book, this book that was written over 2000 or over 1000 years ago and close to 2000 years ago and beyond is actually the word of God. How how cute. How antiquated. That's not going to make us friends. And not only that, but we use this book to draw lines around how we ought to live in this world. We use what we find in this book to draw lines about what biblical sexuality looks like and what biblical gender views look like, when the rest of the world is drawing their own lines. We're refusing to meet them there. This will not make you popular, and it's not going to make us popular. And so as the culture continues to shift and to change, Christians, we will continue to meet persecution, opposition. We will continue to lose favor. And if you're a Christian today, and you hear me saying that, and you think to yourself, well, I don't know. I don't really see persecution. I don't really know what he's talking about. Then one of three things is probably probably true of you. Number one, it might be that you just don't hold orthodox truth. You might not actually believe what the Bible says. The other thing, though, is that you might not know many believers, or non-believers. The third is that the believers that you do know might not know what you believe. And so persecution is real. It is true. It is something that's going to be a part of our walk with Christ if we hold the truth, if believers, non-believers know us, and if they know what we believe. And so because of this, Peter writes, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, he says, Beloved do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as if something strange were happening to you. What he's saying is the things that you believe, they're true, but they're likely going to lead to your suffering, to your persecution, to your loss of favor. So don't don't be surprised. Don't think it's strange. Suffering for the name of Jesus is the norm. And the thing is, as we saw just a moment ago, Jesus himself told us that. John chapter 15, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hates you. And John, the one who penned those words, wrote in his letter in 1 John chapter 3, do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. And so Peter, he's telling these Christians that persecution is coming, not to scare them, but to prepare them. To prepare them for how they should respond on the day that it comes and be free. That's the reason that we need to look at this passage as well. How do we prepare ourselves when persecution comes? Are you prepared? Are you ready to interface faithfully with persecution and opposition? How should we respond in the face of persecution? There's three ways. We're going to see the first way now. Verse 13 through 14. Here we go. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. So how do we respond in persecution? Number one, we rejoice. (laughs) Number one, we rejoice insofar as we share in Christ's sufferings. Now, how does that sound to you? Does that make sense to you? When I say to you, rejoice in your persecutions, how does that feel to you? How do you respond when you hear that? Or when you hear James say the same thing? Or when you hear the book of Hebrews say the same thing? How do you respond? Does it mean that you're supposed to actually like your persecution? I don't think so. Is it trying to say that we're supposed to just grit our teeth and force a smile and act like we like our persecution? I don't think that's it either. Let's look at the entire verse 13 here, because it's actually going to answer that question for us. Verse 13, but rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, here it is, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. In other words, be free. We rejoice in our persecutions now because we know that glory is coming later. We can rejoice in our persecutions now because our persecutions can be seen as a sign that we are truly united with the suffering servant. As verse 14 says, If you are insulted in the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Peter doesn't expect us to find joy in persecution itself. Rather, he expects us to find joy in the fact that we have a confident hope in our future. If you are sharing Christ's sufferings on earth, you will share with his glory forever. Our persecution is evidence of true faith. Our persecution provides certainty of our eternal hope. Our persecution is a sign to us that we will receive his reward at the end of the time. Not because we suffer, but because we are united with the one who did suffer. So we can rejoice in the face of persecution knowing that our eternity is secure. And now think about how important it is to say that because when you face persecution, opposition of any time, when you lose favor, I'm sure that you're more tempted to doubt whether it's true that Jesus is the Lord. How many people throughout the years when they've faced persecution have started questioning, is this actually true? Is he actually the king? I mean, if he was king, would I be suffering right now? Maybe I got this wrong. Persecution tends to cause people to doubt. But Peter is saying, don't let it cause you to doubt your faith. Let it prove your faith. And I was saying this just a moment ago, but you know, this, the reality of almost certain suffering we tend not to lead with when we tell people about Jesus Christ. And there's a good reason for that. We're not hiding it. We're not being dishonest the reason we don't lead with it is because what we're offering in the gospel is something so good that it makes the persecution that we might face in this life look like nothing compared to the glory that will be ours in Jesus Christ. And this is what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 18. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Christians, even if we die, for our faith. Worst case scenario, even if we die, we know with certainty that this is what Jesus says in Revelation chapter 2, verse 10, that if we are faithful unto death, that he will give us the crown of life. No one can take that from us. So rejoice. Because facing persecution in this life reminds us and even proves and is evidence to us that we will see glory over the horizon. So that's the first reason. How do we respond in persecution? We rejoice. All right, number two. Number two is a, quick, a little bit quicker. Let's look at verses 15 and 16. Peter says, But let none of you suffer as a meddler or a thief or an evildoer. Sorry, or a murderer. Switch those. <laughs> Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. But let him glorify God in that name, in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, the point of these two verses is not new to us. We've seen it multiple times throughout the book uh, of 1 Peter. We saw it in chapter 2. We saw it in chapter 3. And really, the point is simply this. If you suffer for Christ, that is evidence that you have a true faith, that you are truly united with the suffering servant. But if you suffer for your own sin, dude, that's on you. That's what it says in the Greek. It says, dude, that's on you. He's saying, if you think that you can just sin and then be persecuted for it and then call it persecution, sorry, sin and suffer for it and call it persecution, then you're off your rocker. That's not how it works. If you're suffering because of what you did, that's your fault. Christians, he's saying, don't sin. Don't sin, suffer for it, and call it persecution. Don't be a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or a meddler. uh, Like Alex showed us last week, rather we should be self-controlled, sober-minded. We should love one another by speaking God's words and by doing God's spirit-empowered work. And so Christians, in persecution, when people do evil to you, do not do evil in return. Do not return reviling for reviling. How many times has Peter told that in the book already? Rather, what we must do is we continue in righteousness. Continue by imitating Jesus Christ, his love, his faithfulness, and his righteousness, and his holiness. Because after all, when we do these things, it will not only bring glory to God, it will be a witness to the world that what we have in Christ is better than anything that they can throw at us. So how do we respond to persecution? Number one, we rejoice in hope. Number two, we continue in righteousness. Number one, we rejoice in hope, confident that glory is just over the horizon, and we continue in righteousness, not returning evil for evil. And now, finally, number three, we're going to see this in verses 17 to 19, so join me there. Peter says, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome? of those who do not obey the gospel of God. And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. He starts by saying, for it is time. (laughs) He's talking about this time. And he's talked about a certain time all the way throughout the book. Chapter 1, he says, he's talking about a a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. In the last chapter, we're going to see that he says, at the proper time, he may exalt you. Last week, Alex was in 4, verse 7, and he read that the end of all things is at hand. And he explained to us what that meant. He explained to us that the end of all things being at hand, what that means is that we're in the last chapter of Jesus' work. We're in the last chapter of his story of redemption, the last stage of his plan to fix everything that's broken. That's the time we're in. Jesus is doing that now. And so here, when we come to this passage in 4, verse 17, he says, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And what he's saying is that the persecution that we're experiencing is a rumbling for us. It's it's a sign to us. It's a sign to us that that last time in history has come. That the time of God's judgment is beginning. That we're at the end. We're in the last chapter. God is about to vindicate the innocent and bring punishment to the guilty. His judgment is inevitable. It is coming. And he's going to start with the church. The household of God. His people who do obey the gospel. He's going to seek our hearts to see who is truly his. And then from us, he's going to move out and his judgment will extend to all those who do not obey the gospel of God. That's what we know. A judgment is coming and it is coming to all people. Therefore, 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 verse 19, this is important, join me in verse 19. He says, therefore, because of this, because judgment is coming, let those who suffer according to God's will, that's us, entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. How do we respond to persecution? Number one, we rejoice with hope. Number two, we continue in righteousness. And number three, we entrust ourselves to God. We rejoice in hope, we continue in righteousness, and we entrust ourselves, entrust our souls to God. Now this is what we're going to be thinking about for the rest of our time together this morning. What does it mean to entrust your soul to God? What does it mean for us to entrust ourselves to God in the face of persecution? What does it mean to entrust? We should probably start there. When Olivia and I go on a date, we leave... Davy with a babysitter, we are entrusting Davy to that babysitter. We are handing over to that babysitter responsibility for that child. We're handing over to that babysitter, we are surrendering the control of Davy into her hands. Parents of teenagers, when you give your kid the keys, you are entrusting them with the car. You are trusting them take out the N, you are trusting them with the car. You are giving them responsibility for the car. You are surrendering control and putting everything into their hands. That's what it looks like to entrust. Uh, when When you shop online, you shop from some website that you haven't bought anything from before, and you enter in your credit card number and you're a little bit nervous, you're nervous because you're entrusting your bank account information to somebody you don't know. Makes sense, actually. You're handing over responsibility for your bank account number. You are surrendering control of what they do with that number into somebody else's hands. That's what it means to entrust, to hand over responsibility, to surrender your control of something to someone else. And so what does it mean to entrust our souls? If entrusting Davy means giving someone else responsibility for Davey, entrusting trusting your, your keys means giving over control for your car, What does it mean for us to entrust our souls? Well, entrusting our souls over to God is something that we do at the beginning of the Christian life and continually throughout the Christian life. At the beginning and then every single day afterwards. So let's look at the beginning first. What does it mean to entrust our souls to God at the beginning? of our walk with Christ. It means that we entrust ourselves to God by coming to him by faith. And faith is not a perfect belief. That's not what faith means. Faith is not the absence of doubt. Faith does not mean absolute certainty. Rather, for a Christian, when we say that we have faith, we are saying that we believe God enough to trust him. We believe him enough to entrust our souls to him. To trust that Christ's perfect life, death, and resurrection will result in our freedom. Faith is jumping and trusting that the Father will catch you. Faith is surrendering your efforts to justify yourself and trusting that what he has done is sufficient to make your life sufficient to save you. In other words, what we do is we hand over responsibility of our soul to God. And we say, God, we cannot do enough to make us right in your eyes. We cannot do enough to earn your love. We turn over control of our soul into the hands of God. The most faithful and the most trustworthy place we could ever put it. And say, God, we cannot do this. We cannot make ourselves holy and righteous and just. But you can. God, will you do that for me? There's such a radical difference between believing and entrusting. Believing and having faith. Because your faith is a measure of not how perfectly you believe, but how perfectly you entrust yourselves to God. So we humbly entrust our souls to, it says here, the faithful creator. We put the responsibility of our eternity out of our hands and into his. And so if you hear that today and you're thinking to yourself, you know, I've always believed that there was a God up there, but I've never actually trusted. If you're thinking to yourself, I believe that in God, but I just don't know if I've ever surrendered my eternity into his hands, laid down any delusion that I can do anything to make myself right in his eyes. I want to encourage you and beg you today, let go of the belief that anything you do will make you acceptable in God's eyes. Let go of the delusion that your church attendance, your prayer, your your Bible reading, your not sinning, will earn you God's love. That's not how it works. Our perfectly just God will pour out judgment on all people. It's coming. We saw that. And the only people who are good enough to not bear his wrath are the perfect ones. That's not me. And that's not you. No offense. Jesus is the only perfect one who has ever lived the only way that He takes our sin, the only way that He gives us His righteousness is when we entrust ourselves to Him. When we trust not in what we have done, but in what He has done. That is the only way that we can find life in the name of Jesus Christ. And so that's what it means to entrust ourselves to God at the beginning of our walk with Christ but now what does it look like for us to entrust our souls to God every single day after that? Because we entrust ourselves to God continually throughout our lives, throughout our walk with Christ. So this is not an example of persecution, but it is an example from from our own lives, from my own life. Um, Olivia and I, as you might know, are in the adoption process, and we've been in this process for quite a while. The way the adoption process works is that we get cases of, of, of birth mothers. Um, they're sent to us. We look at these cases and we just decide, you know, are we able to say yes to this, to this case? Do we have what we need to care for this child? You know, and for most of these babies, uh, we're able to say yes. Uh, and so we give a thumbs up. We send the thumbs up back to our, our agency. Um, and then the birth mother has the final say. The birth mother gets to decide where her baby goes at the end of the day, and that's that's a really good thing. But at this point, we're in uh, adoption case number sixty-five, maybe sixty-six, and what that means is that we've said yes to sixty-five or sixty-six moms, and we've gotten no's back sixty-five or sixty-six times. And you know, even though we know that's kind of average and that's how this works in this process, it's wearing. We're exhausted. We're tired of hearing no after no after no. And this week, we got, we got three. All we want to do is have another child in our family that we can raise and, and care and love. It doesn't... Uh, in, in, in the moments when we start getting discouraged, there's a lot of tears in our household. Do you know the only way we can get through that suffering? The only way we can get through that time is entrusting our adoption process into the hands of God. That's the only way we can get through that, is by reminding ourselves that we've been praying this whole time that God would bring the baby into our house that he wants in our house. And so a no is an answer to prayer. When God says no, not this child, we say, okay, God, well, it's in your hands. It's hard to say that. Sometimes it takes us 24, 36 hours to say that. But we don't find peace. We don't find his rest. We don't find his hope until we remember that he's got a plan here. And he's going to work it out in the way he intended it to. Here's another example from this week. Uh, Actually, no, here's another example from this morning. Um, I was, we came to church, I was ready. I felt like Davey uh, when she got here. I was ready to go, I was excited uh, to worship with everybody and to to be together. And then I got here and, as you can tell right now, uh, tech's been an issue. Woo! Yeah. And um, got here, hooked it up, did the exact same thing we did last week. And it didn't work, (laughs) okay. And it just threw the whole morning into panic for me. Because the people who are at home, I want them to be able to worship with us. You know, we we did that survey and we got all these responses. People want to worship at the same time, of course they do. (laughs) So when we weren't able to connect with people, I was just so frustrated and heartbroken if we couldn't figure this out. And so I left to go home to get Olivia and come back. And it was as I was driving that I was realizing, you know, I'm not even practicing what I'm literally preaching today. I'm not entrusting this morning into the hands of our God. Yes, it could be true that this doesn't work out. It seems like maybe it didn't. But this is in God's hands. Am I going to let that stop us from worshiping this morning? Am I going to let that prevent me from worshiping the one true God with my family? How could I do that? The thing I have to remember is that if God is good, if he is powerful, if he is who he says he is, and he is, then do I really think that I could go wrong by entrusting everything into his hands? He's the powerful one. He's the good one. How could that be a mistake? And if God really does know all things, if he remembers all of his promises, and if we know he is faithful, as this passage says he is, Do we really think that he's forgotten the promises he made? Do we really think that he could not work things out, even if it's not on our timetable? This is what it looks like to entrust things over to the Lord. To stop and remember who is good, good, good. Who is powerful, powerful, powerful. Who is holy, holy, holy. Because he's the one on the throne, not you, not me. So what is more logical than to turn things over into his hands? It might take a little bit to convince yourself of that in the moment. I know it takes me a little bit sometimes. But We need to stop and surrender our sufferings into the hands of God, our hardships into the hands of God, our joys into the hands of God. Our, our work, our discouragements, our everything, our children, our job, into the hands of God. Continually. So what does it look like then with persecution? Because that is the context. And that is what he's getting at here. He's saying that we rejoice in hope, we continue in righteousness, we entrust ourselves over to God. What it means for us in the face of persecution, is that when we are persecuted, we do not retaliate. When we are sinned against, we do not sin in return, but rather we give it into the hands of God. We do not take justice into our own hands to claim vengeance for ourselves, but as Paul says in the book of Romans, we allow God to execute justice. We allow God to execute vengeance. We entrust it into his hands, understanding that our persecution will be dealt with from the only one who will judge justly. And we can be confident about that. We entrust our persecution into the hands of God, trusting that the king who reigns over all will work this out not only so that we are protected, but literally for our good. Because look, if God is really perfect in justice, if he will really defend the vulnerable, if he will really not let the guilty go unpunished, do you really think that he will overlook the persecution that we endure in his name? He sees it. He will not neglect you in it. He will carry you through it. And even if it results in death at the end of the day, you will receive the unfading crown of glory and you will be with him forever. This is the confidence that we have in the blood of Jesus Christ. So how do we face persecution? We rejoice in hope. Remembering that glory is just on the horizon. We continue in righteousness, not returning evil for evil. And finally, we entrust ourselves to God, entrusting our souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Be free, will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we know that this this topic of persecution, it's something that we've talked about quite a bit as we've walked through this series on 1 Peter But it is something that we're tempted sometimes to not not believe in. (laughs) Sometimes, Lord, we're so quick to dismiss our persecution, so quick to say something along the lines of, well, we don't even know persecution in this country. And it's, it's true. The persecution that other Christians have known in other places and at other times make our persecution look like nothing. But the reality is, Lord, it's a reality for us, and it will be. And if it is, Lord, we want to be ready for it. Father, we want to be able to rejoice even in the midst of our our persecution, knowing that we will be with you for eternity. Help us do that, Lord. Father, we want to continue in righteousness in the face of persecution. Help us do that. And Father, we want to entrust ourselves over to you. Yes, in persecution, but in all areas of life. So Father, help us do that. And Father, I pray today that if there's anybody who has who heard this message and has realized, you know what, I've never entrusted my soul to God. I might, I might believe that he's up there, but I've never surrendered control of my eternity to him. I pray that today would be the day. That they would talk to the person that they came with. That they would talk to me or, or Rob or anybody else here this morning. To ask more information about what exactly does that mean. And I pray for the rest of us, Lord, those who have. Help us live in a way where we continually surrender and entrust ourselves to you no matter what comes. May you be glorified, Lord, in all of this. We do it all for you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.